Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 135 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with returning guest Lee Miller all about plants for shade. The plant profile is on Abutilon, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with C.L. Fernari, who shares the last word on growing vegetables from seed. This episode, we're joined by Lee Miller, landscape designer and blogger. She was a previous guest of the Garden DC podcast way back on episode 72, talking all about low-maintenance gardening, and we have her back today to talk about shade gardening. Welcome, Lee. Oh, hello, Kathy, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. So that episode was recorded in August 2021. So it's been a a bit more than a year. Um, Any changes or new developments in your horticultural life? Well, I've been expanding my presentations. I've been doing more speaking engagements for garden clubs, uh, for the local university. Uh, That was fun teaching the students and seeing their eyes light up and see their interest in landscape design. So we have some future designers uh, coming along and uh, working on the blog and just kind of keeping busy. I I love to write. I, I love to, I'm constantly on reading you know articles on horticulture and just kind of keeping keeping update on everything and winter is a good time to do that as well when the season's is a little bit slower to do some reading and some some catching up mm. and you had time to write a new book um, so that book is titled shade gardening for the northeast and mid-atlantic a guide to planning the ultimate shade garden Yes, yes. That one, it really, it came about through so many of my clients getting increased number of calls for shade gardens. And it's been over the last couple of years. So I, I think it's it's because a lot of the gardens here, especially well in this area on Long Island, but all over, as the trees mature, it's becoming more and more shade. And also, as uh, a next-door neighbor, for example, builds a shed or some kind of structure, or they have trees on their property, I get a lot of calls saying to me, Lee, what can I do? I can't tell my neighbor to chop down their trees, but my garden's all shady and I don't know what to do. So that's really what encouraged the the writing of the book. Hmm. Yeah, and so much, many of us have a shady portion of our landscape, if not a full shade garden. And, you know, as your garden matures, it becomes more and more and more shady, right? Correct. Correct. You can even have, for example, you can have southwestern exposure, but if the neighbor has trees that are on the south side or the western side, you have shade. So even though you have the southern sun, it doesn't matter. I was going to say that shade gardening is actually one of the most pleasant 
kind of gardenings I find uh, versus full sun or being out in the July, August vegetable patch uh, because, of course, it is shady. Absolutely. And and what's nice, you can even uh, you can introduce a bench or a walkway or a fountain or a statue. And that pretty much says, come on, come visit, come sit down and enjoy the shade garden. Mm. And we should probably define shade, Lee, and talk about maybe the differences between deciduous and evergreen shade. Okay, uh, certainly. Basically, you have partial shade or you have full shade. Partial shade is about three to six hours of light a day. That could be an eastern exposure, northern or eastern exposure, or even, as I had mentioned, it could be in uh, southern or western if there's trees in the area that are, that are blocking the light. Full shade is less than three hours of light. But you have to have some element of light. You can't have 100% shade. There has to be some kind of filtered or dappled light coming through because plants, of course, do need some lighting for, for survival. That's such a good point, Lee, that, you know, 100% shade as in darkness, nothing can make chlorophyll pretty much. Right. <laughs> I right. mean, there are some cave-dwelling uh, creatures <laughs> and plants, but that, that's going to be pretty tough in, in our landscape. And really quick, you had mentioned you're based in Long Island. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how your garden is doing and the weather. It's been one of the strangest winters, and it's been like this for the last couple of years. It's January, Kathy, and we are getting temperatures in the upper 40s and 50s, a lot of rain, no snow. There are concerns. I've had clients emailing me, asking me what's going to happen if we do get the deep freeze because we don't have the insulation from the snow. And today is more like March. We have winds coming off the water with gusts, and it's just been very, very strange. And I, I think our gardens are going to be changing along with our weather patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds very similar to a typical mid-Atlantic winter. Um, here, we might get you know, one or two inches of snow, then it melts the next day, then maybe a dusting a couple weeks later. And then every once in a while we get, you know, walloped with, mm-hmm. you know, a foot or more of snow. And then that's unusual, but it usually melts after a week. We don't have that steady snow ground cover, mm-hmm. um, snow cover on all the surfaces that insulates everything. Ours usually melts pretty quickly. And then we have that constant freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw cycle. Right, right. And plants are very resilient. They do adjust, but it it has been a little bit on the crazy side, very unusual type of weather. Mm -hmm. So we're talking shade gardening and especially our favorite plants for shade gardening. Uh, But before we dive into those plants, let's talk some shade gardening principles. So if I have a new home, and say a shady backyard, uh, what are the first considerations I might make? First thing you want to do is monitor the area and figure out exactly just how much lighting you are getting. I say that to my clients all the time. Observe the lighting, observe the moisture, the soil. Uh, You have to look at those things before you start choosing your, your plants, just to have an idea to get you started. That's a good point, Lee, because dry shade and wet shade are 
a million miles between, right? There's so much different plants. And I am a blessed and cursed with a ton of dry shade because it's under large, shallow rooted oak trees that like to suck up all the moisture underneath them. Um, whereas I have neighbors who have really wet shade backing onto um, stream beds or along parkland um, down a valley so that they're really sitting in wet. Right, right. Well, that, that could be difficult, but you can pick, if you pick the right plant for the right place, you can have success. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about some of those plant choices. So in your book, um, your first chapter is on evergreen trees and shrubs for shade. Um, and those are obviously ones that have foliage most of the year, if not all of the year on them. Um, so what are your some of your favorites? Oh, there's so many to choose from. I like to choose for foliage. The Japanese Akuba, the gold dust plant, it's so beautiful. It has those broad leaves with the green background and then the little specks of gold. And that really brightens up the shade garden. There's also another one which has become a favorite over the last few years. It's called Osmanthus Goshiki. It has its green and white foliage. But the new foliage comes in with shades of beige, pink, and gold. And even now in the wintertime, I had just posted on my last blog post, you can see the gold and pink tips. And it's just so beautiful. There's also, of course, cherry laurel, skip laurel, mountain laurels. The broad, a lot of broadleaf evergreens. Lakothi is beautiful. There's one called Rainbow that has shades of cream and green and pink to the leaves. It has kind of a, a, a drooping feature to it. It even gets little white blooms in the springtime. Oh, I can go on and on and on. But uh, it's some beautiful for foliage. Sure. Let's talk a little bit more in detail. And I love the osmanthus as well because you get also a little bit of flowering and that beautiful scent as well from them. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. And so you mentioned um, in some of your favorite evergreens in the book, you also have Daphne and Camellia, which I find to be hmm, not the easiest plants for beginning gardeners. Any tips for those two? They have to be in the right place. The, the Daphne, it likes a very woodland type of setting. You know, as far as you see the winter time, you might want to spray the leaves with an anti-desiccant. Uh, the camellia, I haven't really had any problems with it. There's one called Yuletide, which seems to do very well. I'm sure that there's certain varieties, some do better than others, but that one I've been pretty successful with. Hmm. I agree. Yuletide is, is probably a great choice, and because it does bloom more late fall, early winter, and carry those blooms over the wintertime, that can be a beautiful addition to the winter garden. Yes, yes. Hmm. And so another evergreen that you recommend is the boxwood green gem. Yes. That is a perfect shrub because it only gets two to three feet max. It's perfect for shade. It's low maintenance. All you need is you can either let it go free form or you can do a slight pruning in the spring after it pushes out new growth. And as far as the boxwoods, there is another one called new gen, which is more disease resistant. But as far as boxwoods, everybody says as far as the fungal infections, I think all you really have to do is keep an eye on it. 
And if you see something happening to it, spray it with a fungicide and spray it with an antidesicant in the winter time to prevent drying. But it's a it's it's such a nice plant and there's also a variegated one which is gorgeous. If you want to bring some color, it has the green and the yellow in it. If you want to bring some color into a into a shade area. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the antidesicants. Um, and so that those can be used on a lot of our broadleaf evergreens. So that could be your rhododendron, the camellia you mentioned, mm-hmm. the boxwoods. And because they can get a lot of damage from that dry winter wind, yes. but also maybe if you're in a salty type of climate, getting salt air, that can help as well. Yes, if it, if it prevents the, the water loss from, from the leaves, and it, it works very well. Hmm. And when you apply the antidesicant, do you do it on the top and bottom of the leaves? You try to get as much surface area as you possibly can, and it is organic, so that you're not putting any chemicals into the environment. It's perfectly safe for that. And you spray it when the temperatures are in the 40s, 50s. You have to be very careful not to spray it if you know you're going to have freezing temperatures because you need quite a few hours for it to to dry. So the best time, I always tell people sometime in November, December, the best bet to spray. Mm -hmm. And it also helps for some insect issues as well. Yes, it it actually smothers some of the the uh, the larvae for the insects. Hmm. Yes, like a, I think scale insects in particular. Yes. If you're having an issue with those, that might be something for you to try. Yes, exactly. And another point, you can also use a dormant oil in springtime. Well, springtime or or fall, you can apply it to to, to smother the insects. Mm-hmm. And then again, you were talking about not applying when it's too cold. You also don't want to apply when it's too hot. Yes. Yes. There's a happy medium because you don't want to accidentally fry the the, the foliage. Yeah, that would not be good. No, no. no. <laughs> Basically cooking it at that point. Right. Another beautiful evergreen you have pictured in the book is the Ilex aquafolium argentia marginata, mm. and that's a mouthful just to say variegated English holly. Um, what do you like about that English holly? Oh, I just love the foliage. I'm a big fan of foliage, and I just love the coloration. Once again, the, the yellows and the greens mixed in, and I don't consider it, a lot of people consider hollies prickly. I don't think, I don't consider it that prickly. I, I just love it. It's growing nature and it's it just it's just a beautiful plant mm-hmm. and you do have several other hollies uh noted in the book including of course the american holly satter hill which has mm-hmm. beautiful berries oh yes yes beautiful berries and the nelly stevens has beautiful berries and they're wildlife friendly the birds can eat the berries during the winter time there's another one called hugendorn which i write quite a bit about it is very similar to a boxwood, but not prone to the blight, the fungal issues. It's compact. It gets two to three feet in height, uh, a round form, and it's perfect for either you can put it in the woodland garden, you can put it in foundation planting and shade, and it can be combined with so many other wonderful shade plants. So that, that's a good one, the Hugendorn. Hmm. And do you have any pruning tips for those? Simply prune after it pushes out new growth in spring as you would do with most of your evergreens. Let it push out and then prune it. 
Mm, thanks for that. And so your next chapter is all about deciduous trees and shrubs for shade. And you call the evergreen the backbone of the garden and the deciduous, the structure, I guess we could call it the rest of the skeleton. Absolutely. There's, there's what I call three main layers to the landscape. You have your backbone as we just mentioned, which are the evergreens, which are evergreen all year long and provide you with that color. And then the deciduous plants. There's some really beautiful, the maples are gorgeous. There's one called coral bark maple. It doesn't like a lot of sun. Uh, a lot of people mistake that and they think it, it wants the sun, but it doesn't. It really, it'll get scorched. It prefers a partially shaded area. And the thing with the coral bark maple is that in the wintertime, the new branches are this vibrant coral, as the name, coral color, red, like a reddish pink. And the colder it gets, the more it glows. So on a snowy day, when that snow is coming down, if we ever get snow again, uh, when, as the snow is coming down, those branches just glow. And in the springtime, it has a beautiful light green foliage which turns to a medium green and then in the fall it lights up with like a yellowish orange color so that tree provides interest all year long there's also the eastern redbud which i have it on my eastern side of my property it's beautiful uh, i have the leaping one and in the springtime, before the foliage emerges, it gets these beautiful purple flowers. It just fills the entire tree. And then the foliage comes in, which is beautiful, large, like heart-shaped foliage. So that's another beauty. Even in the wintertime, it looks nice when it, because you have the weeping structure. So that's what I mean by structure, which adds further interest to the, to the garden. Hmm. And on the red buds, there are so many recent introductions, you know, golden versions, chartreuse versions. Have you tried out any of those? I don't have any personally on my property, but I planted a few of the ones with the, the deep burgundy foliage. It's be they're beautiful. And I know the clients have had them for a long time, so they've been very successful. Yeah, they're so gorgeous. And so another understory tree that you recommend is our native service berry, the Amalekir. Yes. And do you find that you get a lot of berries in a shade situation, but the tree still thrives? The tree still thrives. It still gets it still gets the blooms. Now, mind you, you have to have some filter. You have to have some sun coming in. You don't want to put that in deep shade. You want to put get it has to get some light to it. But it is a native, and it's it's a hardy plant, and it does perform well. Mm, yeah, I just love that one um, for, you know, for harvesting the berries yourself and sharing them with the wildlife. Yes, absolutely. So uh, you also recommend the Japanese dogwood or Cornus Kusa, which is also called Korean dogwood green sleeves. Mm. Um, and that actually looks more like a shrub than a small tree, I would say. It depends on how you buy it. Uh, you, you can either... I have one on my property. I absolutely love it. It has a short trunk and then with the canopy, the the kind of rounded canopy, or you can get it with several trunks coming up, which actually does make it look more like a shrub. But the green sleeves, I discovered that one several years back. The blooms are absolutely magnificent, even more so than your traditional Kusa dogwood. They have a little bit of a greenish hue, hence the name. 
they last a lot longer. And the fruit, my tree is covered with fruit at, in, at the end of the season. Uh, I have planted them in many gardens and every single client says, Lee, I absolutely love this tree. So if you can get the green sleeves, that's a good one. Hmm. I'm going to be on the lookout for that myself because I have wolf eyes and I have not had one bloom on that wolf eyes. I mean, it has beautiful foliage, but this sounds incredible. It is. And it's, they don't always have it, but if you ask, maybe they can, they can get it for you. Hmm. And so moving on to some deciduous shrubs for shade, uh, you mentioned hydrangeas in particular, um, the macrophylla and paniculata. Yes, and I, hydrangeas are so beautiful, and there's so many different varieties. A favorite one that I've been using in the shade gardens is the oak leaf variety, ruby slippers. It has the beautiful leaves that look like oak, oak trees, and it gets white blooms, and then the white blooms fade to pink as the fall comes in, and it kind of it gives you a really nice show. Another hydrangea that I've been using in shade gardens is uh, limelight, the limelight tree hydrangea. I did one, I have one garden, uh, we had the evergreen backdrop, and then we had several of the limelight hydrangeas, we had three of them, and that was the middle layer, and then we had, we mixed in all the other things, and use, and we didn't talk about perennials yet, but the coral bells and, and the sedges and all that. Hydrangeas are just beautiful, and they, they can go just about anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way they look, especially the, the oak leaf ruby slippers that you mentioned. That's more of a dwarf form yes. than the straight species of the oak leaf hydrangea, which can get, you know, eight to ten feet. Right. So depending on the variety, you can use it as your backdrop, or you can use it in the foreground. Mm-hmm. And so another deciduous plant that you highlight is the Hypericum, the St. John's wort, and you specify the cultivar Magical Universe. I'm not familiar with that cultivar. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? I fell in love with it. <laughs> I saw it at the nursery. <laughs> um, it's more of a dwarf form. It only gets about two foot high. Uh, mine's about that now, and I've had it for several years. The flowers are beautiful, the the yellow flowers that it gets. But I, what I like even more is the the fruit. The, the after the flowers fade, it lasts throughout the entire winter. So I'm getting this interest all season long. So it's it's a beauty. Mm, sounds gorgeous, and that's definitely a low growing deciduous plant. Yes. Yeah, so that can go in the foreground. Mm-hmm. And another kind of shorty, depending, I guess, on the cultivar you pick, is the Itea virginica, and you pick the cultivar Merlot. Yes, that's a, that's another beauty. Low, like you said, low-growing, mixes in with a lot of different uh, perennials in front of it, and that's that's another wonderful addition to the to the uh, the shade garden. Mm-hmm. And you end the chapter with viburnum trilobum, which is the American cranberry bush. And I know it grows well for you um, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how well it will do for us here in the Mid-Atlantic. I don't know too many people growing our native cranberries. I don't, I'm not sure how well it would do there. Um, it, it does, like you said, it does well here. And that, that brings us to another thing. When you're planting your shade garden, always 
know what zone you're in. Don't buy, if you're getting something, don't get it just because it says it's for your zone. You want to, you want it to be hardy two zones below, one to two zones below or one to two zones above for, for complete success. Hmm. That's good advice, especially uh, since we just talked about the changing weather patterns right. and either milder or colder winters, you know, things are going to fluctuate wildly back and forth. And so the cranberry bush is um, listed in your book as zones two through eight, which is a very broad um, zones. But if you're in seven, you know, eight, that might be kind of pushing it. Right. Seven. I don't personally have it in my yard, but I've seen it at many arboretums and it's doing very well in seven, but like you said, eight might be so-so. And then that brings us to the wonderful category of perennials for shade. Um, And so a lot of them are uh, beautiful foliage, but also beautiful flowers. Um, So let's start with the ladies mantle. Um, And that I find, um, does well in wet shade, but not so much in dry shade. Right. It likes a lot of moisture. And what's beautiful about the lady's mantle is the foliage. It does get those beautiful little uh, yellow blooms, but it's all mm-hmm. about the foliage because it collects the raindrops and they glisten in the sunlight. It does. I, I have it growing in my shade garden and it, it does require quite a bit of moisture. It, it doesn't. It doesn't like to dry out. Mm-mm. Yeah. And as you said, the sparkle of the water drops sitting on the leaves is part of the charm of the plant. So if you don't have that moisture or that, you know, constant dampness, it's going to be tough for you. Exactly. Hmm. And next you have the, uh, this surprised me to be a, a shade perennial listing is the Japanese anemone, because I find that more to be part sun to full sun. But um, how are you using it in the shade? I. Uh- I would say actually it it does I would say more partial shade I find it does that's an interesting pick because that one it will do full well in full sun it will also do well in partial shade I I, I wouldn't go too shady on it but it's it's versatile Yeah I do think it's one of those plants that can span from part shade to part sun situations if it's in really beating down afternoon hot sun it'll get crispy mm-hmm. um and then of course if it's in deep shade you're probably not going to get flowers right right yeah so it you have to find that happy medium mm. and i love the next one you mentioned which is the aurelia cordata sun king just because the name is sun king it seems like a weird choice for shade <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's because it, it brings the sun to the shade. It, that's a beauty. And even though it's a perennial, it looks more like a shrub. It has that beautiful golden foliage to it that really lights up the, the shade garden. That That's definitely a, that's a winner in, in my book. Mm-hmm. That is all about the foliage. All so. about the foliage. And it's a beautiful chartreuse, you would even say, very yellow green. Um, and the flowers are kind of like, yeah, it gets flowers. Right, insignificant flowers. It's more about the foliage. And then you can get, you can also get the small, the black ornamental berries on it like later in the season. But yeah, it's it's a beauty. Yeah, kind of like a little sprinkle of flowers and then the berries later. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
So the next is a funny one, Aruncus goat's beard, because I always think of that as like the bigger, hairier cousin of a stilby, which you also include in the book. So can you compare and contrast the Aruncus to the stilby and what situations you would use either of those? I kind of agree that it's the larger cousin of the astilbe in a way because it, it resembles an astilbe, but it's much larger. So that you would use maybe a little bit more towards the backdrop versus a astilbe, maybe a little bit more forward in your garden. I love the flowers. The flowers are that wispy, kind of creamy off-white. It, it's, a, it's a pretty plant. And the astilbe, where would you use that in the garden? There's so many different varieties. My One of my favorites is the peach blossom, which is a peachy color. A stilby, you would combine with your, your, your golden sedges and your hostas and your brunera. It, it goes with so many different things. You could also combine it with your, your evergreens. It goes beautifully with... Actually, next to anything, like even a spreading you, you have the dark green of the spreading you, and then you bring in the color of the pot from the astilbes, and they come in. You have peach, you have purple, lavender, white, red, so many things to choose from, and they vary in height, too. So you can get the, the lower ones, the shorter ones, or more like the ground cover, and then you can go all the way up. There's one called Visions in Red, which is absolutely knockout gorgeous every July. It always blooms around the 4th of July for me. And the blooms are these large purple blooms. And that one gets a good, this one gets a good three feet in height with the blooms on it. Mm-hmm. And again, another wet shade lover versus dry shade. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. And so we're coming now to Brunera, some tape. Some people say Brunera, Mm -hmm. uh, depends on how you pronounce it, uh, or Siberian Bug Gloss, which is an unfortunate (laughs) common name. It it sounds so weird, but it is one uh, that I love. It's a nice clumping plant, Mm -hmm. and I find it's a great substitute for hostas. And I think you've marked it as deer resistant. So maybe we can talk now a little bit about some deer resistant shade perennials. Sure. First, a note as far as the Brunera. That is one of my favorites. That's one of the most attractive shade plants as far as the beautiful, large, glossy, heart-shaped foliage and the little specks of silver and sprays. It's just so, so pretty. Uh, It is deer-resistant, and some of the other deer-resistant, one of my favorites, and I, I use it a lot, but there's a reason why I use it a lot, it's the Golden Japanese Sedge. And I have two favorites. It's Evergold and Everillo. The Evergold is more of a golden character, whereas the um, the Everillo, their Evercolor series, it has yellow on the inside of the grass-like foliage with green on the outside. Now, the thing about that is it's evergreen. It's shade-loving. You don't have to do a thing to it. The only thing, if you have a harsh winter and you get a little tiny bit of burning on the, the tips, you just cut them off in the spring. And of course, it's deer resistant. You also have the mondo grass is deer resistant. A lot of the ferns, the ferns are, are deer resistant. Hellebores, hellebores are absolutely gorgeous. They're blooming right now. One of my favorites is Shooting Star. It's 
pinkish white blooms. And the blooms are actually, they're not blooms, they're black bracts. And they last for months and months and months. I have three, four different types and it takes me all the way through March. So those are uh, deer resistant. Astilbe is deer resistant in quotes. And so is liriope, variegated liriope. Those are beautiful. For the most part, deer will not touch them. Once in a while, you'll have a rare case where they're sampling and hmm. they might nibble. Uh, but they're, they're considered deer resistant. I'm sure that there's others. Uh, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's, I'll come up with them. <laughs> there's, there's other deer resistance <laughs> as well. No worries. Yeah, I think that's that's a great selection, and I'm glad you highlighted hellebores in particular, just because a they're blooming now mm-hmm. and or about to bloom in a lot of people's gardens. They don't mind being in almost deep shade and will still bloom for you. And as you noted, they're critter resistant. Right. And I just thought of another one: epimedium. Mm. Mm-hmm. Barrenwort. That's that's deer resistant. And it's also drought tolerant once it gets established. So that's another nice one. And the foliage is gorgeous on that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of epimedia myself for, for in dry shade. You know, you do have to water for the first year or two to get it established. Right. Um, but then after that, it's good on its yes, own. And it, it covers, it, it, it's, it, it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, I, I call it a ground cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say perennial slash ground right. cover. Mm-hmm. A native cultivar that you're recommending also for the shade is Chelonia hot lips. And that's also known as turtle head. Um, so that one, I find, again, you're not going to get as much flowers if you put it in the shade. Once again, go for part shade on that one. But that's that's an interesting plant. I, I love I love the flowers on that one. <laughs> they call it turtle head. I, I guess it kind of looks like a turtle popping his head out of the shell uh, with with the the flowers that are kind of a pinkish purple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very um, I guess snapdragon like mm-hmm. is the the best or closest that you could say for the f- flower shape itself. Right, it's different. Mm-hmm. And you also cite hardy cyclamen, which is also kind of a different flower shape and mm-hmm. has a nice basal growth on the ground. And you're listing that again as a deer resistant choice. So we can add that to the deer resistant category. And let's see, ajuga. Uh, ajuga, hmm. my favorite is black scallop because it has the larger leaves and the purple flowers. That That's deer resistant. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. So we have some great choices there. And the common foxglove, Digitalis purpurea, um, you've listed that in here. Um, does that reseed for you or it comes back from the same mother plant and expands? It reseeds. Uh, <laughs> and that, as, as you know, that one, you're getting different plants, but it's biennial. So what happens is it, it blooms and then it reseeds itself and it just keeps spreading throughout the, the garden. And it's perfect underneath the shade trees yeah that one is one that i'm gonna have to experiment and grow more of because um for me in the dry shade it it doesn't reseed as well Mm. but maybe i will give it a little bit more babying and so uh we're up to hookera and those beautiful coral bells and since we talked a lot about hellebores i kind of feel like hookera and brunera and hellebore should be the heart of anyone's shade garden yes and they all go go well together as well as all the coral bells and i've tried many 
the best two from experience are Palace Purple and Caramel that I've found. Uh, the Palace Purple is that deep burgundy color, and the Caramel looks like caramel. Um, and those two, whereas I find the other coral bells die back. There's also one called Paris, which is really nice too. But a lot of the coral bells, they, they kind of die back. They don't look so as well during the winter time. The Palace Purple and the Caramel, I enjoy those all winter long. And yes, towards spring, the foliage might start getting a little crispy. But then I just run my fingers through it in spring and get rid of the crispy foliage and let the new foliage come up. And just one note on the coral bells, which is a very important. If we do get that frost heaving, the frost and then the thaw and then the frost and the thaw, they may push up out of the ground. So all I do is simply like lightly step on it and push it down into the ground so that it protects the roots. That's the only thing you have to watch out for with the coral bells. Yeah, I agree. You might want to check on your hookra every few weeks throughout the winter for frost heaving. That's just pushing the roots up out of the ground and then they're kind of exposed to the elements. Right, right. And so we can't talk about shade gardening or favorite shade plants without talking about hostas. Mm. So what are some of your favorite hosta varieties? My favorites are Francis Williams with those glorious large leaves that with the gold and green Shadowland. Shadowland is magnificent. If you can get a hold of one of those, they aren't the easiest to find. I did manage to find it in a local nursery years ago. It has the green, gold, and cream. And that, that's a medium-sized one. Uh, Patriot is a nice one, too. It has uh, It's green and white, but a lot more white in it similar to Minuteman, which is green and white, but I think the Patriot is a lot more striking. And there's also the the blue hostas. Those are beautiful. You have the cadet, which is the small one, and then you have the, the larger varieties that will, they can get up to, I've seen them two to three feet in width in the shade garden. And lots of times, family and clients and friends, they'll ask me, when should I divide it? And I just, I, I think they're just so gorgeous. They leave it alone. It's beautiful. They're absolutely magnificent. Yeah, I agree. Leave that giant leave clump there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you really need to fill in spaces, it's gorgeous. Right. And then there's the little so, ones too. There's baby ones, uh, miniature ones, which are, are beautiful. And there's one that I came across just recently. I actually saw it at the local Arboretum. It's called Curly Fries. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. The It doesn't have the wide leaves. It has elongated foliage that's curly on the edges, and it's more on the yellow side. It's it's really it's a really cool plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Curly Fries, and there's a couple other miniatures I love that are in the the mouse uh, family, like mouse ears, mini mouse. Those are so cute. Those were the dwarf ones. I was, I was thinking of yeah, the, the mini mouse are adorable mouse ears. So we can't leave shade perennials without talking about pulmonaria or lungwort. That's a beauty. Now I have mine growing in the back shade garden. It gets really only a few hours of sun a day. 
green foliage with white polka dots. And then it gets pink buds in the early spring. It has pink buds. And then the pink buds open up in the variety I have to bluish purple flowers. And it does well all summer long. And the foliage just keeps getting better and better. I find in wintertime, though, because I've had it a few years now, in the wintertime, you start losing some of the, the foliage. It, starts, it, it stays partially evergreen. But then any foliage that turns brown and gets mushy, you have to get rid of that. Uh, and then they'll be fine. It'll, it'll actually, I actually, mine's actually pushing out new leaves, believe it or not, but it could, because it's been so mild. But as long as you get rid of that, the mushy, you don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to encourage any fungal issues. Exactly. Plus, it's just a little unsightly, right, so right. just gets a, a little more tidier that way. And so you have a whole chapter on shade-loving annuals. And I was pleased to see that because I see so many books on shade gardening that don't even address annuals at all. Like they just completely ignore the the annual category. Um, And I think that's a shame because they're great for filling in spots or for shade containers. Absolutely. Of course, impatience are, they just bloom all season long and they even have the new hardier varieties because for a while there was an issue with them but they're doing fine now coleus oh my goodness coleus the foliage on that there's so many different varieties uh sweet potato vine it comes in yellow or purple that's your your spiller so to speak that's you can put into a container and one of my favorite container plantings that doesn't it can be in your shade garden but it can also be underneath your overhang on your porch is where i have mine and that is a combination of different varieties of coleus so we have pinks and greens and reds and oranges i combine all the coleus whatever fits in the pot and then i take the the sweet potato vine and cascade that over the edges and i combine the two varieties the the golden green and the uh the burgundy and that looks absolutely gorgeous and of course there's violas who doesn't love violas mm-hmm. <laughs> they're so pretty and mm-hmm. uh elephant's ear that you just stick in the pot and boy is that so much fun i had one one year that was taller than i was and i i had fun hiding behind the leaves <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I also noted, if you're not a big fan of impatience or, you know, still having trouble with them, you have Tyrrhenia and Browillia. And that's two varieties of floriferous, you know, flowers mm-hmm. after flowers after flowers all summer long yeah. um, annuals. So I really love those as substitutions for impatience or, you know, just as a alternative. The Tyrrhenia is especially really pretty. I like that one. The, the, the blue flowers are, are, are really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it comes kind of, you know, in the purpley range of flowers. And then Browillia, same, kind of more the purpley pastel side of things. And you also, uh, when you mentioned the elephant's ear, kind of their smaller cousin are the caladiums. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Those those are, are beautiful as well. So, yeah, and these plants you can either combine in your shade garden. If you want to, some people like to give a nice tropical feel, you know, so you can throw some of those uh, caladiums in there or, or elephant ears or, and, and do that. Or you can put them in the planters, as, as we had mentioned. Hmm. And so you close out the book with shade inspiration, 
with some photos of shade gardens and also shade gardening maintenance tips. So let's talk about some of those shade gardening maintenance tips. Sure. Shade gardening is beautiful. And as we mentioned, if you have the right plants in the right place, you can have a beautifully successful shade garden. There's a couple things you do have to watch out for with shade. Number one, I would recommend trying to water with drip irrigation. You really don't want a lot of water laying on the leaves. If you do have mist heads and the water's getting leaves, you just have to watch out. Monitor your plants. If you see spots or holes in the leaves, that could be a sign of a fungal infection. And then you want to treat as as needed. That that's the only thing you have to you have to watch out for. That that's that's the biggest concern with the shade. Mm. And one of the pros of shade gardening, of course, is fewer weeds popping up. So you have a little bit less maintenance that way. And then you mentioned mulching. Yes. Mulch has so many benefits. It keeps in the moisture. It adds organic matter to to the soil and to the plants. It moderates the soil. I have so many clients ask me you know, as far as the mulching and it's just, it's even it's important all year long. It's important in the summertime to cool the soil. It's important in the wintertime to warm the soil. So it, it's a moderator. And that's so very important for the plants. But you have to make sure that you don't never pile your mulch up around the plants. I see that way too often. It, it smothers them. So you, you want to just a thin layer, two to four inches, and keep it away from the, the main base of the plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the edges of your house, you know, yes. a few inches back, especially if you have wood shingles. That's a precaution. You don't ever see that on the bags of mulch, but they really should put that they on really there. They really should. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about shade combinations. So we talked a lot about our specific favorite plants, but how to put them together. Yeah, one of my favorite combinations of all time, and it's very simple, is the golden variegated sedge, the carex, put that with the caramel coral bells, and you can combine that also with black mondo grass. So you have the golden sedge, you've got the caramel coral bells, and you've got the black mondo grass. It is absolutely spectacular. Uh, You can also do... Like as far as the evergreens, I had mentioned, if you do the darker evergreens, brighten it up a lot, like with some liriope or some uh, Japanese forest grass is also very pretty. I, I, I try to get a lot of the golds in there and, and the burgundies to, to mix that in. The ajuga with the, I just love the foliage of ajuga and, and it's great along the, the front of the, of the garden. And then you get the uh, purplish blooms in the springtime. The possibilities are endless. There's so many things you can do with a shade garden, and so many people underestimate the shade garden, but you can really have a lot of fun with it. And I'm glad you mentioned a lot of those variegated or chartreuse or light colored leaf plants because they do really brighten up the shade, you know, and and make things kind of pop. Um, So, say if you had all solid colored ferns and hostas, it it just wouldn't be the same. Right. It's all about combining the foliage and getting a little bit of evergreen, get a little bit of flowering, get a little bit of, you get the structure. It's just, and, and you play with it. You said there's no, there's no, there's a few rules as far as what to you, you make sure you're using the right plants, but 
you can have fun and, and, and play with the, the, all the different possibilities that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking about the color side of things, but also the texture. Yes, yes. Like the, the curly fries pasta that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, yep, mm-hmm. definitely. All right, so any final thoughts for our listeners, Lee, on shade gardening? Uh, well, I would say if you've ever felt intimidated as far as shade gardening, don't be. Just make sure, just see the amount of lighting you have, the amount of moisture you have, and go to the nursery and, and pick out what you like and make, make sure you read about the zone. But just kind of go with it and just enjoy it and, and make it make it your own. Great advice. Thank you so much, Lee, for sharing about your new shade gardening book. How can our listeners get in contact with you? I have a blog called A Guide to Northeastern Gardening. It's landscapedesignbylee.blogspot.com. Or you can simply search A Guide to Northeastern Gardening. There's over 350 articles on there, all to do with gardening. And I post on the 1st and 15th of every month. And there's a link on there to my other blog. And there's a link on there to my, my books as well. And as, as far as uh, my book is concerned, you can just go on Amazon and search for Lee Miller Gardening. L-E-E Miller Gardening, and they'll, uh, they'll pop up. Thank you so much, Lee. Well, thank you so much for having, having me on today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Abutilon plant profile. Abutilon is a small shrub or tree known commonly as the flowering maple. It has beautiful showy flowers in a wide range of colors, typically yellows, reds, and oranges, some with unique markings. Biltmore Ballgown is an heirloom variety from the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. It has beautiful dangling tiger-stripe blooms. Abutilon is a member of the Mallow family and is a relative of hollyhocks, okra, and cotton. It is native to the subtropics and the tropics. It is reportedly deer-resistant due to the fuzzy leaves, which some people report can cause a skin reaction, so wear gloves when handling it. In our region, abutilon is not hardy and is sold as an annual or a houseplant. You can put them outside for the summer and overwinter them in their containers in a sunny room or greenhouse. If you do this, beware that it is susceptible to white fly infestations. They love to be in bright, indirect sun, plant them in good, rich soil with plenty of moisture, especially on hot days when it can wilt. It flowers on new growth, so prune as needed to encourage branching. Abutilon, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, 
I took a little visit over to Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, and saw that the Japanese apricot Prunus Mume is already blooming in the fragrance garden. And I even spotted some daffodils showing color as well as some crocus. So spring is near. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to attend include Maryland's Rare, Threatened, and Endangered Species, an online talk that takes place on Monday, January 30th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It's free to register at montgomeryparks.org. Carrie Wexted, a master naturalist, will teach about 1,200 species that have been listed as rare, threatened, or endangered in Maryland. Also happening locally, on Friday, February 10th, meet your neighbors, bark and buds, winter tree walk with right proper brewing. Join Casey Trees for their first neighborhood walk of 2023 and warm up while learning about the winter characteristics of trees. They'll start off at Casey Trees office in the Brookland neighborhood of Washington, DC, and they'll stop at the right proper brewing company along the way for a chat, a beverage, or both. You can find out more about that event at caseytrees.org. On Sunday, February 12th at 2 p.m. is a talk on getting ready for spring, ideas for natural landscaping and spring container gardens. This is a program hosted by the Sandy Spring Museum's Garden Club, and you can find out more about it at sandyspringmuseum.org. The speaker is Carrie Engel, the greenhouse manager of Valley View Farm Garden Center and Nursery. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jens. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now they're looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn, knowing how and when to replace your turf, and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need and some you didn't even know you needed. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants and an incredibly useful chart giving you all the specifics on each of those choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea what a beautiful lawn should be. Available February 7th, 2023 and you can pre-order it now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden 
turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at Amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is my last word about growing vegetables from seed. I'm the garden lady, C.L. Frenari, and one of my favorite things in the summer is being able to walk into my vegetable garden at five o'clock and ask, what's for dinner? There are usually four or more answers, all fresh and flavorful. Since I've worked in a local garden center for years, I know that some people are hesitant to grow vegetables from seed. Sometimes they want the instant satisfaction of buying a squash plant and putting it in their raised beds or into the ground on the same day. I totally get the appeal of this. We lead busy lives. So for many, monitoring whether their seeds are still moist or have germinated is just a bit much. But by limiting your vegetables to those that can be found already started in pots or six-packs, you're missing out on some great varieties. Let me give you a couple examples. I would not be without Tuscan kale in my garden. This is one of the most long-producing crops you can grow. You just pick the oldest leaves and let the plant grow taller and taller, and you will have kale to harvest from early in the summer into the winter months. Tuscan kale is sometimes called Lancelito or dinosaur kale, but whatever name you use, it's not always available in plant form, and yet it's easy to grow from seed. I love the green and yellow variety of summer squash called Zephyr. And by the way, that's spelled Z-E-P-H-Y-R. It has a great nutty flavor. And it's one of the most mildew-tolerant zucchini varieties there is. When all of my other summer squash plants have succumbed to powdery mildew, Zephyr keeps putting out new foliage and new flowers, even though the older leaves are infected. My husband and I eat a salad from our garden pretty much every night of the week from mid-June into December. And this is possible because we grow lettuce, arugula, and mustard from seed about every two or three weeks. By planting new short rows of these seeds every two or three weeks, we always have fresh greens to harvest. We do the same with cilantro and dill seeds so that these tasty herbs are available in our garden all summer long. And this is good because there are seldom young plants to buy in the garden center in July or August, but we know we'll have cilantro and dill because in the spring we bought extra packets of seeds. Beyond availability, seeds make sense financially. For the price of a three-pack or six-pack of plants at the garden center, I can have dozens, sometimes even hundreds of seeds. And my last word in this last word segment is that starting plants from seed is truly one of the most life-affirming things we can do.
Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine. Thank you.